Thank you for accessing this audio resource from Glad Tidings Church. This is Pastor Tim Rice. I hope you enjoy the message and receive some benefit from it. If you do, please let us know. Send your comments to info at gladtidings.church. Now, here's this week's message. But last week we began this teaching series by taking a, uh, on this, this series on the prayers of Jesus Christ, we began by taking a general look at the prayer life of Jesus Christ. So you remember, um, we talked about his attitude about prayer and how it differs from our attitudes about prayer uh, a lot of times. And then we also talked about his practice of prayer, how uh, he prayed frequently. And so we, we spent some time talking about his practice of prayer. And then we covered a few of his instructions about prayer. Now, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on the instructions because that's kind of the purpose of this series as we go through and we talk about the uh, prayers of Jesus. We're going to learn from him about, uh, about how to pray. And so that's what we did last week. Next week, we're actually going to begin studying the prayers of Jesus. And remember, there are seven of them that are contained in the Gospels, and so we're going to take our time, we're going to work through those seven prayers of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels uh, for us. However, before we do that, before we move on and talk about the individual prayers of Jesus, we need to spend some time talking about uh, what is the greatest innovation, if you will, that Jesus introduced to us regarding prayer. Uh, the greatest innovation, and that, and that is the revelation uh, that he gave to us that when we pray, we can address God as our Father. What a privilege that is, amen? And so that's the, the greatest innovation that Jesus made concerning prayer, the greatest revelation that he gave to us about our ability to pray, and that is that we can address God as our Heavenly Father. Now, I've already referenced that the disciples came to Jesus and that they requested that Jesus would teach them how to pray. And it was not because they did not know how to pray. It was that they wanted to learn how to pray like Jesus prayed. They wanted to have the same kind of prayer life, the same kind of experience, the same kind of results that Jesus had when he prayed. Uh, because they already, as, as Jewish uh, men, they had already been trained, they had already been taught how to pray, but they wanted to pray like how Jesus prayed. And so that's contained in Luke chapter 11, verse number one says, now, and this is in your notes, or a part of it anyway, it says that now when Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he, Jesus, said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Now, there it is. That's the, that is the um, greatest innovation. That's the uh, greatest revelation that Jesus gave to us about prayer. And that is that when we pray, we can say to God, Father. We can address him as our fathers, as our father. So what Jesus goes on to teach his disciples is, of course, the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to come back to and we'll, we'll begin to discuss that. We'll talk about the Lord's Prayer 
uh, next week. However, tonight I just want to emphasize for a few moments, and we're going to spend some time at the end of the service as we did last service, as we're going to do every service, spending some time in prayer. Um, so just for a few minutes, I want to emphasize the significance of Jesus authorizing his disciples and authorizing us to be able to pray to God as their father or as our father. Now, we've already noted that Jesus prayed because of his relationship with the father. It wasn't just a ritual. It wasn't something that he just did. It wasn't something he checked off on his, uh, spiritual, uh, his spiritual disciplines. But he prayed out of his relationship with his father and, that, and that's how he addressed God almost exclusively in his prayers to God. He addressed God as my father or as father. But here's the thing. God was his father, right? God was his father. Jesus had a unique relationship with God uh, the father. Nevertheless, Jesus instructed his disciples that they ought to pray to God as their father also. And, and that's the difference. That's the significant revelation that we're talking about tonight. Now, this would have been um, in first century Judaism. This would have been surprising, if not scandalous, uh, a scandalous suggestion to make. The disciples, and this is in your notes, the disciples were not unfamiliar with the concept of God as uh, their father. That is, you know, they, they kind of knew about, and I'm going to talk more about that in just a second, they kind of knew that God was their father. So they were familiar with the concept of God as their father. However, they would never presume, the disciples or no Jew, would ever presume to address God as their personal father. So they, they understood that in a, in a general sense, God was the father of them all. He was the father of Israel. However, they would never have presumed to address God in their prayers as my father or to address him in a way that suggested they had a personal relationship with him as, as their father. They knew that God was uh, a father, that he was the father of Israel. In fact, many ancient religions uh, used that kind of imagery, the imagery of uh, God as a father, even false religions, even idols, even foreign religions use that same kind of imagery that their God, their, and we would say their idol, was their, their deity, was their father. For instance, uh, some uh, religions, false religions, again, we would say, some recognize their deity as the progenitor of all creation, that, that their deity was the father of, gave birth to, if you will, uh, all of creation. For example, the god El of Ugarit was referred to by them they referred to their God as the father of all mankind. And the Babylonian moon god that they called uh, Sin 
Um, he was, they called him the father and the begetter of all gods and all mankind. And so many Near Eastern cultures uh, use this kind of imagery that their deity, their God, was their, their father. And many of those cultures believed that their, that their kings, their earthly kings, were directly descended from their deity, that they were, quote, sons of, of their deity or their God. So some of these um, cultures and some of these religions had these same themes in, in their own religion. And some of these same themes and some of these same ideas and images are contained in the Old Testament as well. That's why the disciples would have been familiar with the concept of God as their as their father. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, God is often portrayed as the father of Israel. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 6 says this, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So Deuteronomy uh, declares that God is Israel's father. Or Isaiah 63, verse 16 says this, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is, is your name. So the father imagery is throughout the Old Testament. It's, it would... It was not uncommon for them to perceive and conceive of God as their father. So it's used throughout the Old Testament. And, and this is important. It's used to convey two very important things about God's relationship with, with his children. Number one, it is used to convey the fact that he has absolute authority over them. As their father, he was, he was the ultimate head. He was uh, their creator. He was their God. He was their Lord. And so he had absolute authority uh, over them. Uh, fathers today know that's not always the case in your household, right? <laughs> um, but it, in that culture, it was certainly true that the father had absolute authority uh, over, over the household and over the family. And so when that imagery is used in the Old Testament, it is used to communicate that God has absolute authority uh, over all mankind, in particular over, over the people of Israel. And then number two, that the imagery of God as a father is also used to communicate that God gives care and protection to his people. That a father is... Not only does he have ultimate authority, absolute authority over the home and over the family, but that the father has a responsibility to care for and to protect his children and, and his household. And so the um, father imagery that is throughout the Old Testament is used to communicate those two things, that God has absolute authority uh, over his people, over all mankind for that matter, and that also that he, has, he accepts responsibility to care for and to protect 
uh, his children. What is, what is not suggested anywhere in the Old Testament is that any one individual can enjoy a, um, the sort of personal relationship with him that Jesus is talking about in, in his prayer. So again, in the Old Testament, God as the father of Israel was, he was the father over all of Israel. But what is not intended in the Old Testament is that, or not suggested in the Old Testament, is that anybody can have a personal relationship with him as, as their personal father. And so that's what makes Jesus' revelation about prayer here in the New Testament, that's what makes it radically different than anything that the disciples would have been used to up to that point. Uh, radically new is a radically new teaching about how you can address God in prayer, that you can call him uh, your father. So Jesus says, when you pray, say, our father. When, when you pray, say, father. When Jesus talked about God, he usually called him uh, called him Father. 170 times Jesus refers to God as Father. And when Jesus prayed to God, he almost exclusively used uh, that name, Father. In fact, the only time that Jesus did not call God Father in one of his prayers was when he was on the cross, and we're going to talk about that prayer also, uh, when he cried out to God and he actually is quoting here Psalm 22, verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time that God addre uh, Jesus addresses God and does not call him Father. So Jesus, and this is in your notes, so Jesus set an example of prayer for his disciples as something that is an intimate and an informal conversation with God, a God who is your father. And he instructed his disciples to, he instructed his disciples to adopt the same approach, the same way that he called God his father. He told his disciples they could address God as their father as well. Now the word for father that Jesus taught his disciples to use was probably the Aramaic word Abba. Abba. And that's in your notes also. Although in most places in the New Testament, if you look at the uh, Greek New Testament, in most places uh, it uses the, the Greek word pater, pater for, for father. Uh, but we know that Jesus, we know that the word that Jesus used for his disciples or told them to speak when they pray is Abba because, first of all, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the word is Abba, Abba. Uh, furthermore, that word Abba is specifically preserved in one of Jesus' prayers, and that's when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he calls out to God and says, Abba, Father, Abba. And so that was the, the word that Jesus used. And then we know that Jesus taught his disciples to use the word Abba uh, as father because it is specifically mentioned by Paul in two of his epistles when Paul is writing to the church 
and he uses the word Abba, and we're going to talk about those references later. So that word is preserved in the teachings of Paul, and he said, "This is, you know, this is how we pray. We know that we pray in this way." So the word that Jesus uses here is Abba. He tells his disciples to say Abba, Father. And what we need to know about the word Abba is that it is it is actually a significantly more familiar term than the more familiar term father. So like if my kids call me father, then I know that uh, there's some request coming up that is probably maybe they've uh, done something wrong. Father, I need to tell you <laughs> something. Uh, when, when I'm having conversation with my kids, they're going to call me dad or daddy. And Abba is a familiar term for father, not the formal word for father. And as such, it is never used, it is never used as a term of personal address to God by anyone else other than Jesus Christ. That's why, like I said, it's, it's such a radical uh, teaching about how to pray to God. Because it is a familiar term for father, not the formal term uh, for father. Uh, and Jesus is telling his disciples they can, they can have that kind of familiar relationship with God as their dad, as their Abba, their daddy. So the precise meaning of Abba is still, is still debated a little bit. However, it's clear um, that the word actually originates from what we would call we would call it baby talk. That Abba actually originates uh, from, from what we would call baby talk. Uh, it's one, in other words, it is one, it's one of the first words that Jewish babies would learn to say. Um, just like, you know, uh, English-speaking babies might say, one of the first words they might say is uh, dada for daddy or papa or some baby talk kind of word for father. They wouldn't come out and say father. They would say dada or papa. Something. And so Abba is actually, the, is actually comes from baby talk. It was one of the first words that Jewish babies would learn. In fact, the Talmud says that when a child experiences the first taste of wheat, that is, when a, when a child is uh, finally weaned off of his or her mother's milk, that it learns to say Abba or Imma, which is mommy, daddy or mommy. So the word that Jesus taught us to use when we pray to our heavenly father is one that is based on a very, on a very close and a very intimate, a very a family relationship. It is a familiar relationship of love. And in, and in notes, I have put it conveys, it is a word that conveys both deep love, deep affection, and also profound trust. Profound trust. And that's what Jesus is picturing for his disciples when he is telling them that they can call God their Abba, their, their daddy, their father. And that is that they can have a deeply personal relationship with God the Father. 
and that they can grow in their love uh, toward him, experiencing his love for them, and that they can grow in their trust uh, toward him. However, this word abide is not, it's not restricted to baby talk. Uh, Grown-up sons and daughters would also use the word. In fact, they would continue to use the word abba as they uh, address their father. And they would continue to use it as, a, as an expression of deep love and respect for, for their fathers. Just like today, um, adult children might still call their father or they may call their grandfather papa. Uh, because it's a term of affection and it's a term of respect and a term of love. So abai is not just baby talk, um, uh, but it is, it is also loaded with the significance of a relationship that has learned to trust uh, God as a father. So abai is a word that can, can grow in significance and grow in meaning as a child grows in their understanding and their appreciation for their father. So Abba is the first word that a baby might be taught, they might learn to say uh, in addressing their father. But Abba then becomes a word that they use because they have learned to love and learned to trust their heavenly father. Do you see that distinction? It's, it's a word that we as Christians can use when we address God because Jesus taught us. You can t- call your heavenly father Abba, your father. But it is also a word that grows in significance as we learn to trust him and as we learn to love him. In fact, Jay, and this is in your notes, J. Gresham, Gresham Machen once said this, and I love this quote. He said, the more that we know of God." the more unreservedly we will trust him. Isn't that beautiful? The more we know of God, the more we learn about God, the more we experience his care for us, the more we experience uh, his concern over us, the more we know him as our heavenly father, then the more unreservedly we can trust him because we trust his character and we know that he loves us. So abai is not a, it is not a formal word of address. It is actually an intimate name of affection and love. But it's not, but it's not a superficial or it's a, not a shallow term uh, either. It is, it is a word that, pro, that expresses the profound bond of faith uh, between a child and uh, us and our heavenly father. And again, there's no record of this name ever being used as an expression of invocation of God in the prayer literature of Judaism. Jesus's instructions to his disciples were entirely new and a revelation that we can have that kind of personal relationship with God as a father. And it was a lesson that stayed with the disciples. It, it was one that, they, they, that stuck with them. And there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that the, that the disciples comprehended this lesson, that they understood 
the lesson that Jesus had taught to them, and they continued to use that language, the Father uh, language, in their own writings and in uh, their own practice. For example, in his, jo- in his gospel, John says, you remember this? John says in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he was in the world. He's talking about Jesus. In John chapter 1, he says he was in the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But verse 12, you might be able to even quote this verse with me. Verse 12 says, but to all who did receive him, that is, to all who trusted in Jesus Christ and received him as their Savior and their Lord, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what John is affirming there in in, uh, those verses is that Jesus is God's son. Again, he enjoyed that unique relationship with God as his father, but that also Jesus has given to anyone the right, the, the power to become God's child, he's given that right and that privilege to anyone who believes on him. That when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive uh, the power, we receive the right to become children of God. So John is restating what Jesus had, had already taught him, that when we accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, And when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we also receive the right to call God our Heavenly Father, our Abba, the God who cares uh, for us. In fact, the connection is more explicit in in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, this is where I want you to take your Bibles And I want you to turn, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to read, well, not just verse 6, but we're going to read several verses there in Galatians chapter 4, which makes this connection because it makes this connection uh, much more explicit, that we have this right to be able to call God Abba, our father, our our, uh, daddy, if you will. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Um, Paul here is, is writing and he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And look at verse number six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) 
Paul says, you know, at one time we were alienated from God. We were strangers, um, and we were apart from God. And at that point, the law ruled and reigned over us. It was a schoolmaster. It was a taskmaster uh, over us. We were, although we were born of God in the sense that God had created us, we were still under bondage. We were slaves to sin and and under the bondage of the law. However, Paul says, but God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem those, to redeem us who were under the law so that now we might, by faith, we might receive adoption as sons so that now we have this right and we have this privilege that we can call God Abba, our Father, that we have been brought into that kind of close intimate relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. I think we need to say, thank God, amen, hallelujah, for what God has done uh, for us. In fact, this passage explains the privileges that we have because we are uh, the sons and daughters of God, the rights that we share as children of God. And so in your notes, I want to list those for you uh, before we close. The rights that we have as children of God. Number one, we have the right of freedom. Freedom. God's word says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Aren't you glad that you're free tonight? Amen. That because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, Paul says, God's word says, we are no longer slaves. We are no longer bound, but now we have received freedom through, through Jesus Christ. We are no longer, Paul says, we are no longer bound by those elementary principles of the world. Now, is Paul talking there about the elementary principles of sin, or is he talking about the elementary principles of the law? And the answer is yes. We have been set free from the law of sin and death through Jesus Christ. Amen. Because of what he has done for us, we are no longer under the penalty of sin. We are, we are no longer bound by the power of sin. We are no longer under the tutelage of the law. But now we have received freedom through grace because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we are now under a new rule of life, the rule of liberty in the Holy Spirit. Which, which doesn't mean that we have the liberty to break the law. It means that we are finally free to be able to obey the law, the perfect law of liberty through Jesus Christ. Before, when we were bound by sin, we were not free not to sin. The only thing that we could do was sin because we were in bondage to sin. Now, because of Jesus Christ, we are free not to sin and to live for God. Thank God uh, for the freedom that we enjoy as the children of Almighty God. Amen? Number two, the second right that we share as a child of God is we have the right of security. Security. The Bible says that if we do sin, then Christ is the propitiation for our sins. We don't, we don't have to fear that we will be cut off 
from Jesus Christ because God gives grace to us now through Jesus Christ. So uh, I don't know about you, but my kids don't always completely obey everything that I tell them to do. I hope that doesn't mean I've got bad kids. I hope that means I've got normal kids, right? How many of you, you perfectly obeyed everything that your parents told you? No, don't raise your hand, okay? Because I don't want you to be alarmed. No, our kids don't always perfectly obey everything that we tell them uh, to do. But, but they're still my kids, <laughs> right? Aren't you glad that even when we are, even when we sin, even when we are sometimes faithless, and we don't always, the Bible says we sometimes fall short of the mark. Aren't you glad that God gives grace to the sinner? Amen. And he doesn't cut us off and he doesn't punish us uh, immediately. We have security because perfect love casts out all fear. There's no fear of punishment or wrath anymore when you are trusting in Jesus Christ because you know that you serve a loving heavenly father who has adopted you as his child and that even when you do sin and, and we're going to, he gives grace uh, to us. And so we're no longer bound by fear, but we have the right of security, the privilege of security. Number three, we have the right of adoption, which means that we're not stepchildren in God's family. Aren't you glad that adoption means that I am a legitimate child of God, that I have been chosen by God the Father, and that I have equal standing in the family of God. God doesn't have stepchildren. God doesn't play favorites. Uh, God doesn't show partiality. Uh, he gives grace to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and adopts them as children. Number four, we have the right of intimacy. I have the right, I have the privilege to be able to come to God no matter uh, what the need, no matter what the situation, and I can call him Abba, Father. I can approach him with confidence in my heart because I know that he loves me uh, with an everlasting love. So I have the right of intimacy. Number five, I have the right of assurance, which means that the Spirit, Paul says, the Spirit bears witness in my heart that I am a child of God. Aren't you glad for the witness of the Holy Spirit that confirms that God loves us and that he has purchased us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I have the right of assurance. And then number six, I have the right of inheritance. Paul says if we are heirs, and we are because we're sons and daughters of God, that means that we have, that we have an inheritance that is laid up for us. Uh, all that Christ has purchased, what Christ has done, it belongs to me, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And now I have an inheritance in heaven. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus told his disciples, he said, if I go away, he said, I'm going to go away to prepare a place for you. <laughs> we have a place that is prepared for us, a place of glory a place, uh, our heavenly home, the presence of God, um, glory forevermore. I'm thankful that God has laid up for me an inheritance in heaven. These, 
These uh, belong to us. These are privileges that come to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ because we are adopted into the family of God and we have received the right to call God our creator and our Lord, the right to call him Abba, our, our father. So these rights were actually also affirmed in Romans chapter 8. Now I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 8, if you will. These same uh, rights, if you will, privileges are also affirmed here in Romans chapter 8 where there is also another direct reference to the use of the word Abba uh, in our praying. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse, well, let's begin in verse number 12. He says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, there it is again, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see there in Romans chapter 8, those same privileges, those same rights that Paul had already referenced in Galatians chapter 4, uh, the freedom from uh, slavery, that we have freedom, right? Uh, that we also have the right of security. We don't have to fall back into fear anymore. Because God has adopted us, we have the right of adoption, we've been adopted as sons, we have the right of intimacy, we can cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, we have the right of assurance, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we have the right of inheritance, that we are heirs, uh, not just heirs, but fellow heirs with Christ. And that there is a glorious inheritance that is laid up for us, thank God for the privileges that we have as the children of Abba, God our Father. However, these verses also reveal that there are also some responsibilities that we share as children, uh, as children of God. There are responsibilities that go along with our rights as children. In fact, notice verse number 12. Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Which means what? We have an obligation. There is an obligation upon us. Not an obligation to live according to the flesh, but, but we do have an obligation that is upon us. And so the, the relationship, the personal relationship that we have with God as our Heavenly Father, He gives us some wonderful rights and privileges, uh, but it also places upon us some responsibilities and some obligations as well. And so let me list those for you uh, also there in your notes. Number one, the responsibilities of a child of God is number one, to crucify the flesh. That if we are God's children, then Paul says we have an obligation. We're debtors 
Not to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if we are legitimate children of God, then we have an obligation that has been placed upon us. And we have received the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be able to crucify the works of the flesh. So if we have, if we have experienced grace legitimately in our life, then we cannot go on living the way that we used to live. Amen? We cannot go on living the same kind of life that we've lived before because if we've received grace, if we've been adopted as the children of God, then we have received the Spirit of God that will enable us to crucify the works of the flesh and pursue holiness and righteousness. So we have an obligation, we have a responsibility to crucify the works of the flesh. Number two, we have an obligation, a responsibility to be led by the Holy Spirit, to be sensitive to and to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. One of the privileges of being a child of God is that we have that access to God and we can come to him and cry, Abba, Father, and we have received the spirit of adoption and his spirit bears witness with us and so we can discern his spirit, hear his voice, which gives us an obligation to be led by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, um, is it to the Galatians? I think it's to the Galatians. He said, if we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, then we ought to also keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit that we have received, we have an obligation to be led by the Spirit. Number three, we have a responsibility I know you're all going to love this one. Number three, we have a responsibility to be disciplined by the Father. In fact, Paul said, well, Hebrews says, I'm not sure who wrote Hebrews. Um, Hebrews says that if we're legitimate children, then we will experience the discipline of God in our life. He will train us into righteousness. And then number four, we have a responsibility to suffer. For the sake of Christ. So what, a wonderful, what wonderful privileges that we enjoy as children of God. What, what awesome responsibilities we have. We have a wonderful privilege that God is our heavenly father. Not just our father, but that he is our Abba. Our dad. Our provider. The one who loves us. That we can share that kind of personal relationship with him that means that he will care for us because how many knows we sing the song how many knows he is a good good father to us aren't you thankful for that he is a good good father but it also means that he has absolute authority over us and we must be willing to submit to his his will and prayer when we pray to god as our Abba. Do you see, we hold both of those things in tension with one another. Um, a lot of times our prayers just become uh, wish lists or laundry lists of the things we want God to do for us, right? God, I want you to do this. Please do this. God, please help me here. Do this. And aren't you thankful that God 
God is willing to hear those prayers because he's a good father. He cares for us. He loves us. And he wants to hear our request. Um, but that's just a one-sided, that's a one-dimensional kind of prayer that just prays to God as a God who meets all. That's a, that's, that's a God that is a Santa Claus, that you're just giving him your wish list of things that you want. But prayer, when we pray to God as Abba, our Father, it, he does meet our needs. But that is also, the other side of that is that we're here to serve him. And we're here to submit to his will and to do what he has called us uh, to do. So prayer holds both of those things in tension with one another. But he's a good, good God. He's a loving, heavenly Father. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions or would like more information about following Jesus Christ, please contact us at gladtidings.church. If you live near Dunn, North Carolina, please consider visiting our church on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can also download our church app in the iTunes or Google Play app store and receive updates and notifications. You may use the app to make a financial gift to help support our ministry. God bless you.